Welcome to our podcast, Wayfaring Saints, where faith comes alive and the journey never ends. We're your hosts, Carson and Nathan, and we want you to join us on a transformative journey of faith and purpose as we seek to rekindle the flame of authentic Christianity, restore biblical literacy, and pursue the deep, enduring joy of knowing and following Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Wayfaring Saints. The Garden of Eden was the image or the epitome of everything that God wanted humanity to look like. But at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see that man sinned against God. They took what God intended to be good and they defiled it. They, they changed it. They corrupted it. And so Adam disobeyed God. He ate of the fruit, causing humans to live in a state of perpetual sin a fallen nature. There's the first Adam and the second Adam. And the second Adam being a, it was being Christ, being the Messiah, the one who we're all called to look like. But like I said, we're in perpetual sin. And so we're never able to attain what he had. And so God intends at some point to recreate the world, to restore everything that was broken, to bring it back to his original intent for humanity. And that's coming back to the Garden of Eden. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And it's this idea that God has chosen to redeem his people. And that's today's episode. We're going to be talking about what does redemption look like? How is it applied to us and how do we live it out? And next week we're going to talk about, well, now how do we live in a response to the redemption that God has given us? So the word in Greek, it means to redeem or it's to release something or to set it free by paying a full ransom. So that begs the question, who owned us if we had fallen? Were we possessed by the devil and God had to pay the devil to let us go? That's not true. We sinned against God. And so we had a bounty or a requirement to pay to get out of this fallen state. And God chose on his own behalf to pay himself for us, to go out and send Jesus to die so that he could be satisfied. When you have an all-powerful, all-just God, there needs to be satisfaction for that redemption to take place. And he chose to do what none of us could do, and that was to go down to pay the price of sin and to choose to forgive us of our sins because he paid for it. So he restored us back to his possession to his rightful ownership by rescuing us himself from our own sin. And that's where we get into this idea of the Exodus and the Lamb of God. Yeah, so another definition for this word redeem is to restore something back into the possession of its rightful owner, rescuing from the power and possession of an alien possessor. So we read about redemption throughout the New Testament. And I want to go back, like like Nathan said, to, to Exodus, where we first see this idea of redemption. We first even hear of the word redemption. So 
In the Exodus narrative, Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So keeping those definitions in mind of the word redeemed, God's people were under the power and possession of an alien possessor. They were Pharaoh's slaves, but God delivered them and restored them back to their rightful owner himself. And how did God accomplish that? Through a series of plagues. But, but what was the last plague that finally accomplished God's redemptive work? The death of the firstborn sons. The firstborn son was the one who carried the family name, carried on their legacy, so to speak. So it was God's way of saying that the evil, oppressive system of Egypt must come to an end. He was stepping in, taking action, and bringing an end to evil. But God made a provision. He told the people of Israel to sacrifice a spotless lamb and spread its blood over their doors. And if they did, he would pass over them and spare the punishment. So we begin to see this picture already. God's wrath is coming against evil, but he's also offered a means for his people to be spared. They are saved by the blood of the lamb, so to speak. And ultimately, through the exodus, delivered from slavery, evil, and oppression, and brought back into God's possession as his covenant people. So connecting all of this to Christ's redemptive work, like Nathan talked about before Christ, we were under the power and possession of an alien possessor. Just as the Israelites were Pharaoh's slaves, so we were slaves to sin. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Again, he says in John eight twenty four, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Well, Romans 3.23 says that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that sin leads to death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death or the punishment of sin is death. Right. Nathan talked about this. Like when you work, you, you earn your wages, right? You work for it. You deserve it. Because we've sinned, we've earned the punishment. We've sinned against a holy and perfect God. We've ruined his good creation. And because of that, we deserve death. God won't let sin ruin creation for all of eternity. He will bring an end to it. And when we think about that, who wouldn't want that? We all want evil and suffering to be done away with. We all want justice. We all look out at the world and see that it is broken, that it is not as it should be, and we want to fix it. But the problem is we don't want to believe that we are the problem, that if God deals with evil, that means dealing with us. So there's this huge problem. We've all become corrupted by sin and separated from God. All of creation has fallen under its curse and there's no escaping it. We've all become slaves to its power and the result is death, spiritual and physical. And if God must deal with sin, that means dealing with us. That means eternal separation from God, hell. And this is where we see Christ's redemptive work. It is in this light we truly see the beauty of the gospel. So opening of the New Testament, we see John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. And in Mark 1, 4, it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John's baptism isn't effectually forgiving their sins. Rather, it's preparing them and pointing them to Christ, the one who would truly forgive their sins. So here's the thing. John, he's not talking about going to the temple and sacrificing an animal for the forgiveness of sins, but as we've seen all throughout the Old Testament, you can't have forgiveness of sins without a sacrifice, without a living thing taking the punishment of death on your behalf. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So something is missing from the picture. John's preaching about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, 
but there's no sacrifice to actualize or effectuate that forgiveness. And that is why this moment and these words described in John 1.29 are so significant. These words are key to understanding the mission and the purpose of the Messiah. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying there, there is the sacrifice. There is the one who will shed his blood for your forgiveness, for your redemption. Remember, redemption means to release or set free by paying the full ransom. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is our spotless lamb. He lived the perfect life and giving his life as a sacrifice upon that cross, he died the death we deserve. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, the people were expecting another physical exodus, so to speak, deliverance from Roman rule and oppression. And this was going to be accomplished through this mighty messianic figure, this conquering king who would destroy their enemies and establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus didn't come for a physical exodus. He came for a spiritual exodus. Just as the Israelites were led out of slavery through God's miraculous intervention, so we are led out of spiritual slavery through God's miraculous intervention, the redemptive work of Christ. Just as the blood of the Lamb spared the Israelites from God's coming wrath against evil, so the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, spares us from God's coming wrath against evil. God is bringing an end to the system of evil, violence, and suffering. Through this redemption, we experience a spiritual exodus. Through his blood, we are redeemed. We are set free from the power of sin and death. We are no longer the possession of this alien possessor, sin. We are now God's possession, made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are a new creation. Now, redemption is a means to an end, that end being restored relationship with our creator. That's the beauty of redemption, the beauty of the gospel. It's not just about dealing with the problem of sin, although that is the first step. It's about restored relationship with the one who created us, loved us, and gave himself for us. It's about knowing and enjoying our creator and our savior for all of eternity. And that brings us back to the question, why Jesus? Why why when we see in society that people can bring themselves up out of their situations, when they can work hard to better themselves. Why do we need Jesus as a society? One of the biggest sections that we see in bookstores today is the self-help section, where people can figure out how they can better themselves, what they can do to personally grow, to personally achieve redemption, to get rid of the issues in their lives, what they can do to break down the struggles that they're dealing with. It's the how to get rich, how to stop dealing with addiction, how to manage your time better, how to do all these things. And we see a shadow of the Christian faith in there. We see meditation, we see contemplation, we see these different practices that Christians have taught over the course of history that they're teaching now from a secular perspective. So what would make these people see Jesus as the biggest need for their salvation, for for redemption, when they already think that they're fine. They already think that they don't need a Savior. And that brings us back to looking at the Exodus story. So taking a big circle back is that the people of Israel knew the state that they were in. And that's something that we have to first come to is we have to first know the state that we rest in. People in society and the world around us look at humanity and think of humanity as innately good. 
But that's not true. In fact, humanity is innately evil. We're innately sinful. And no, I'm not saying we're completely evil. Like, you don't have a child or a baby who is going to commit genocides. They're not completely evil. But everybody is tainted by sin. You see that in how children react, how they act to things. And if you're a parent, which I'm not, you can notice it in your kids. You see the maliciousness in their heart, even though they're, they don't understand that or they're innocent or they don't know the difference between good and evil yet. We are innately inclined to lean towards the evil and it's the parent's job to teach them to lean towards the good. But they're still inclined to evil. And so that's the state of humanity is we need someone who can take us out of that state permanently. We need someone who can change our lives indefinitely. And so we look at the option, Jesus. Jesus comes in like God comes in with the Israel story. And what Israel cannot do for itself, right? Israel can't revolt against Egypt. They can't try to break the oppressor and fight against it themselves. I mean, they're slaves. They don't have weapons. They don't have the ability to fight against an army or a powerhouse. They have the numbers, but without weapons, without the ability to fight, they lose every time. And so God comes in and does what they can't do. And for the same for us, what we can't do, we can't break sin ourselves. We can't never sin again. All of us get angry and act on our anger. All of us covet things. We see something nice that our friend has and we want that. But we all want things. We all desire things that we can't have. And that's sin according to the Bible. And so all of us are fallen and none of us can do good outside of God. We can do nice things. We can do helpful things. But the Bible says that nothing outside of God is good. Only the Father is good. So we need Jesus because on our own, we can't do anything. Why do you think rich people happen to be the most depressed people? They, have, they happen to be the most unhappy. Famous people happen to be the most unhappy. When those of us who are not rich or famous, we look at them and say, oh, if only I had what they had, I'd be happy. If only I had what they had, I'd, I'd have satisfaction in my life or I'd feel accomplished. That's not true. It's only through the surrendering of our desires and our lives to the one who can change our lives, that's Jesus, that we are made different. So Jesus, again, like the Exodus story, comes in and does what no one else can do. No other human, no other person can do. He changes us completely. He transforms our lives. He takes the sin away from us. And it doesn't mean that we're without sin now, but it means that God now forgives our sins. He now sees us as different. He sees Christ when he looks at us. And so his wrath, like Carson said, is satisfied because of what Christ did, not because of what we do. We can never earn it. We can never do anything to get out of our own state, which is evil. But Christ can. And so when we come to a place where we recognize our state of life, where we're not good, we sin, we see the need for someone, for a savior to get us out of that. Yeah, it reminds me of people say the first step to getting help is admitting that you have a problem. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, what Jesus is saying and what he shows all throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that he's saying, blessed are those who realize 
their state and know how desperately they need a savior for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you're not going to come to Jesus unless you realize your own state and that you need someone who can save you, that you can't save yourself. And he, you see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about how your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. But you look at the Pharisees and what they did, that was like a death blow to the people where they're thinking, how in the world could we ever exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? I mean, that was everything to them. They were obsessed with living righteously. But that's the point. The point is that you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. So that's why he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, because they will recognize that they need a savior and that they cannot save themselves. And that takes us back to looking at how then is redemption applied to our lives. Well, in Table Talk's issue from April 19, it says this, the spirit places us in Christ, in his own death, burial and resurrection and exaltation. And you can find that in Romans 6, 1 through 4, and also Ephesians 2, 6. Then when giving us faith, the spiritual effects, this gracious union in us personally, that can be found in Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14. So summarily, union with Christ originates in divine election and covenant purpose. In the divine accomplishment of redemption, the Spirit binds us to Christ. At the moment of faith, the Spirit applies the work of Christ to us immediately, personally, and savingly. And I want us to, to really understand the immediately, the personally, and the savingly. So immediately, what does it mean that the that the Spirit applies the work of Christ to us immediately. It means that when we accept Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, as the only one who can change our lives, who can redeem us, who can make us whole, then Christ immediately forgives us of our sins. Immediately our sins are washed away. It doesn't mean that we don't stop sinning. We're still going to sin. We're human. We're fallen. But it means that Christ... That God, because of what Christ did, now sees Jesus instead of our sins. The Bible says that he takes our sins and he casts them into the deepest depths of the ocean, never to be remembered. It means he remembers our sins no more. Jesus doesn't look at us and see filthy rags. He sees holy, anointed, new, restored people who are following after him. Two is personally is Christ applies a redemption for us personally, not just on a global level. Although what Jesus did on the cross universally brought healing to the world, to everybody on it, to the earth itself. If we look back in Genesis, we see that the earth itself is cursed because of the sin that man did. And so that ties us back to people constantly talking about the earth is getting hotter, it's getting colder, we're ruining the ozone layer. What I would say to those people is, yes, we can't deny that the earth is slowly declining because it was cursed by God due to the fall of man. And so we expect one day that God will bring restoration to the earth through new creation. And so to say that the earth is deteriorating is true because the curse brought death to everything, not just humanity. But when we continue to look at the personally is that there is that cosmic level of salvation, of redemption, but there's also the specific 
where God saw you specifically. I was reading a quote a while ago, but I forgot where it was from. And it says this, if there was no other man on earth but you, Jesus would still do the same thing. He would still die on the cross to redeem you. And that's what it means by personally, is that Christ saw you specifically and died for your sins, for what you did last night, for what you did the night before, the week before, the month before, whatever has been weighing on your mind, he died so that that can have forgiveness, so that your life can be changed completely. And the lastly is savingly. He died so that you can be saved, so that I can be saved, so that we could have relationship with God. Sin brought separation. Carson mentioned that. It brought separation from God. And so Jesus bridged that divide. He restored that divide by being the mediator, being the one who who connects us to God. We now have access to our creator because of what Jesus did. And the promise is that one day we will reside with our creator for eternity. And most Christians think of that being us hanging out in heaven with the angels and floating around. But the Bible promises a a new creation. I've been talking about that, where the earth is restored, recreated, where humans are giving a perfect body like Jesus and where Christ himself will descend and reign on earth with us, and he will live with us, and the Spirit of God will live with us, and we'll have access to God indefinitely for eternity. Yeah, so Nathan's talking about the the future hope of our redemption or the redemption of the world. So let's just dive into that a little bit more. So Nathan was talking about how there's this immediate application of our redemption, but there's also this element where we won't experience the fullness of Christ's redemptive work until the age to come. And what do I mean by that? Well, we still live in a world corrupted by sin. We still experience sin, death, and suffering. And we're no longer slaves to sin, and we're freed from all guilt and condemnation, but that doesn't mean we are completely free of sin. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to fight, but the reality is still we must fight. Sin is still a reality, and although we've been made spiritually alive, we still experience the sting of physical death. We still live in a fallen world. We are caught in this in-between. We are in the world, and therefore we experience its brokenness, but we are not of the world. We're citizens of heaven living on earth. We are part of God's kingdom, which, inaugurated by Christ, is now breaking forth through his church, but we still await his consummation, its ultimate realization at Christ's second coming. And this is where we get to the discussion of our future hope, our ultimate redemption, as, as Nathan was talking about, which is also called glorification. Now, there's two dimensions to this final redemption. There's personal and universal. Regarding the personal, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology writes this. He says, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns, raises from the dead the bodies of all believers, reunites them with their souls, and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. For example, we see this in 2 Corinthians 5.2, where Paul writes about the anticipation of receiving these resurrection bodies. He says, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, that is, our resurrection bodies. And so, New Testament scholar Timaki writes, for Paul, the end goal is not disembodied bliss in heaven, but rather restored physical existence. And there's this idea that when we die, 
we simply become disembodied spirits that go to heaven. And that's the end of the story. But that's not the end. That's that's not the whole story. It's a really common misconception that the the meta narrative of the Bible is about us leaving earth behind and going to heaven. But that's actually not the whole story. Ultimately, the meta narrative of the Bible isn't about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to us. It's about the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth being renewed and redeemed. It's about heaven and earth becoming one. It's about the removal of the separation between God and man, his domain and our domain. And by the way, what what is heaven? How should we think of heaven? And we don't really have time to get into the details because it's a complicated subject, but I want to offer a definition given by Wayne Grudem that I think is helpful in this context. He says, heaven is where God most fully makes known his presence. So in that light, you could even further distill the meta narrative of scripture and say that it is ultimately about God most fully making known his presence to his creation. That's the end game. Us living in the new heaven and earth where God's presence permeates everything, where he is truly and fully known and experienced by his people. Now, I'm not saying that at this present time, we don't go to heaven when we die. Scripture clearly teaches that we go to be in the presence of Christ when we die. But ultimately, heaven will be joined to a renewed earth where we will live not as disembodied spirits like Nathan talked about floating around in the clouds, but with our glorified resurrection bodies. And if you've never heard this before, here's a few scriptures. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former thing shall not be remembered. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.13, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And finally, and most clearly, at the climax of Revelation, at the end of all things, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So this is the second dimension of Christ's ultimate redemptive work, the universal. It's, it's not just about a personal exodus, a personal redemption. It's about the redemption of all creation that is under the curse of sin. Remember, God created the earth and everything in it, and he said that it was very good. Then man rebelled against God and brought sin into the world, bringing all of creation under its curse. God's not planning on abandoning his creation. No, he's going to redeem it. He's going to renew it. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he says that creation waits with eager longing. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why? Well, Paul says that on the day of our ultimate redemption, when we receive our resurrection bodies, quote, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation is looking forward to the day when Christ comes again to inaugurate his kingdom, judge the world, and usher in the new heaven and earth where everything is made new. On that day, we will experience the fullness of Christ's redemptive work as the world is at last freed from the curse of sin and death. N.T. Wright sums this up in his book, Simply Christian. He says, God's plan is not to abandon this world, the world which he said was very good. Rather, he intends to remake it. And when he does, he will raise all his people to new bodily life to live in it. That is the promise of the gospel. So I want to conclude with this incredible picture from the end of Revelation where John has this vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Which Side note, it's complicated, but in the ancient world, the sea sort of became a symbol for evil. So when John's saying the sea was no more, he's not saying there's going to be no oceans. He's just saying that evil is no more. It's gone forever. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is what the whole Bible is leading to. It's this picture of heaven and earth, God's domain and man's domain being remade and becoming one. And thus the Lord announces, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Everything leads to this moment. And this is the great hope that we have in Christ. Death isn't an end. It's an exodus, the ultimate exodus. We are delivered from a world corrupted by evil and death, given new resurrection bodies and brought into the promised land, the ultimate promised land, which is the new heaven and earth, where the fullness of God's presence permeates all of creation, where we will at last walk with our creator in the garden, just as we were always meant to. And all this answers the question, why Jesus? Why do we choose Jesus? Because he brings about all these things. Hebrews 10 talks about the daily sacrifices that the priest in Israel had to do to bring salvation, to bring forgiveness of sins. But Hebrews also mentions the opposite, is that Christ one time, once for all, for creation, for humanity, sacrificed himself so that we could have salvation. And that leaves us with this. How do we live in light of this redemption? How do we as Christians or we as people who are exploring Christianity respond to this new life in Jesus, this new freedom that we have in him. In his book, Born After Midnight, A.W. Tozer says this, in the book of Acts, faith was for each believer a beginning, not an end. It was a journey and not a bed in which to lie while waiting for the day of our Lord's triumph. Believing was not a once done act. It was more than an act. It was an attitude of heart and of mind that inspired and enabled the believer to take up his cross and to follow the Lamb whithersoever he went. And they continued, says Luke. And is it not plain that it was only by continuing that they could have confirmed their faith? On a given day they believed, they were baptized and joined themselves to the believing company. Very good, but tomorrow what? And the next day? And the next week? How could anyone know that their conversion had been genuine? And this is so true for today. How could they live down the critic's charge that they had been pressured into a decision, that they have cracked under the psychological squeeze set up by crowds and religious excitement? Obviously, there was only one way. They continued. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Wayfaring Saints. Your support means the world to us. If you enjoyed it, please consider following, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast so that we can grow our community of Wayfaring Saints together. Join us next week as we continue to discuss what it means to follow Jesus as citizens of heaven living on earth.